invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel. We're moving through that chapter. By the time we get to chapter's end, we will be one-third of the way through John's Gospel. There's 21 chapters. This will end the first seven when we are finally through it. This morning, we're going to look at verses 14 through 24 in a message entitled, Reasons to Believe. And I think that will become evident, at least I hope it will, when you see the text before us and just the masterful way in which Jesus handles truth, the way he reveals himself and the way he reveals truth, even at risk to his own life. And eventually they will, of course, take his life for the very things that he's saying. So these things are surely very important. They're pivotal. We've seen him now as we've entered into chapter 3. They already were very uh, disapproving of him up to this chapter. And now the hatred is beginning to escalate. The hatred will reach a fever pitch by chapter 11. Right after the raising of Lazarus, they begin to plot to kill him. And so we're going to look at this, this passage here as we remind ourselves that he's moved on now from... Galilee, the region where the Sea of Galilee is to the north of the Judean region where Jerusalem is. And now he's moved down through Samaria and we find him at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. He goes down to show up midweek. It's interesting. As you remember last week at the beginning of the chapter, his brother said, look, if you want this ministry to take off, you need to do things openly. You need to come down with us to the feast, which they never, they were required to go to the three main feasts every year. And we don't know if they were being sarcastic because the text is clear that it says that even his own brothers, and by the way, of course, they're half brothers because Jesus' father, so to speak, is the Holy Spirit. The rest of his brothers and sisters, which are recorded in Matthew's gospel, came afterward being sired by Joseph. And it says, at least at this point, they don't believe him. They don't believe in him. They're too busy growing up and seeing, you know, um, probably not being real fond of him because how would you like to grow up with somebody that's perfect? I mean, some of us may have had a brother or sister that thought they were perfect, and you know how annoying that can be. So they're saying, listen... You need to go down there. I thought, you, I thought you had something to tell the world. I thought some important message to give. Why don't you come down with us? We'd like to see this happen. We'd like to witness this. You're here now. We're your brothers. Let's go down together. And he turns them down and he says, it's not my time. So everything we realize is on a specific time frame in God's economy in terms of the redemptive enterprise of human beings. So things come exactly at their time. Jesus speaks exactly on behalf of the Father. So for God, he speaks. And the words that he says are very troubling to them. They don't like hearing it because it challenges them, quite frankly. So let's read together verse 14 to 24 in chapter 7 of John. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge 
with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need your help to understand these things. Truly, the, some of the times when Jesus speaks, it sounds rather enigmatic to us. It's, it's words that, it's statements, it's phrases that carry ideas that we're not familiar with. And it's because we are a fallen race. We need your help. We need the help of your spirit to make sense to us, to not only allow us to hear it with our ears, but to open our hearts to it and be convicted by it, to embrace the things that you're saying as they are the very words of God. Help us to do that now for your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. So the hostility's growing, the hatred's growing, as I mentioned. It's escalating. It's going it's to, through chapter 7 and 8, and I, as I said in 11, it, it gets to the point where they're actually plotting to kill him. So the Jews couldn't know of Jesus' deity because they only knew him as a man. They, they, they could say, for instance, well, he's from Nazareth, right? He, his father's a carpenter and his mother Mary. There's even a passage that speaks those words that I've just cited. I mean, we, they name the names of his brothers. I mean, how is it that he understands these things when he's not studied? We would have known who studied. We, we know who go to the great schools that the rabbis study in. We've, we would have known him well. They knew the apostle Paul, well, as he studied under Gamaliel, the preeminent teacher of Israel at the time. I mean, these things were big news. We've never heard of this guy. We know about him now because he's, he's up in Galilee. He isn't even down in Jerusalem. That's, he's, up, he's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, right? Well, he actually wasn't from there, as it turns out, was he? He's from the city of David, wasn't he? Bethlehem. And that was prophesied. So all they can see are things on a human level. They, they know his family, they know what he did. Maybe some of them knew what he was like when he was a kid growing up. I mean, he grew up 100% as a man, as a boy, as a, as a baby, as a child, as a, as a man. And they can't get past that. So that's their problem, though, isn't it? All the way along, it's by observance of things that they make determinations by the things that they can see here, the things that they know about things that are geographical, for instance, like where Nazareth is and who the families are that live there and all of that sort of information that has to do with his life here, his physical life. But they can't, they can't, they can't reconcile that with the things that he's saying. Because the things that he's saying is profound. So he's either a lunatic or he's a liar. One of the two. You can't say the things that Jesus says and be sane or be really truthful. This is, this, this can't be. So he needs to show them. He needs to make it clear. His deity, that is. Well, he has, hasn't it? We've only been through the six chapters and we've seen him work powerful miracles, healing the man at the pool of Bethesda that's been lame for 38 years. Get up and walk. No magic there. If he's been lame for 38 years, talk about knowing somebody's situation. They would have well known that he was lame for a long time, almost four decades. He gets up. He feeds 5,000 men. He feeds maybe 15, 20,000 altogether with the women and children, uh, with the bread and the fishes. I mean, some amazing power is demonstrated. And he's even made this clear in his unequivocal yet audacious declarations that he's making. They're, they've got to be blown back by every statement he makes. It's incredible. The words of Christ are the only words that have divine power in them. They're the only words that can penetrate, pierce the heart of man. And so here's the problem. The problem is if you don't belong to him, these things aren't going to make sense to you. They're going to be like, you know, when's he going to stop talking and when can we get back to lunch? Is he going to make more food? Because I'm getting hungry. These words, it always comes down to that. It always comes down to the words. In the beginning was 
the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You can't overemphasize the importance of the word of God and it's, and it's divine power that it has in it. So you could say rejecting the words of Christ is tantamount or the same as rejecting Christ. If you reject, oh, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, you don't believe him. It's a him that's make, making these statements. It's him that will ultimately give his life for the statements he's making. I mean, all you have to really do is pl- apply some reason and logic, and that's actually what we'll be doing in the final fifth section of this sermon. We're going to look at five reasons to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Five reasons that we can see just in this 10, 11 verses, whatever it is, that make it perfectly clear that he's who he says he claims to be. So the five are this. We'll go through them quickly so that we can get started then. First is the provenance of the teaching. And, and provenance, provenance, not providence. Provenance just means the origination. He shows by where the words originate from. They don't come from him, do they? He makes that clear. They belong to the one who sent me. They belong to the Father. They belong to the Godhead. He's the voice of God. So it's, it's proven there in verses 14 through 16. And secondly, the proof of obedience from verse 17. We'll see what that means. It's an interesting principle. It's an interesting concept that he lays before us. Third, the proper humility that's necessary for him to be the person that he says that he is. He comes with credentials, in other words, many credentials. This is just one short passage in a 21-chapter gospel testimony. And yet you see how much is here. Fourth, the protection of purity, verses 19 to 20. And fifth, the power of reason, verse 21 to 24. He reasons with them in a very, very masterful way that's inescapable, really. And we'll see that as we get to it. But let's get started. First of all, then, the provenance of his teaching. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? He has never Studied, So he's assuming the role of a rabbi. Rabbis during the feast would go up and they would set up shop, so to speak, in the courtyard. The courtyard of the temple was vast. It was huge. And the rabbis would pick a spot, an area, typically the same spot each time because people were, were partisan, right? So they have their favorite rabbi that they go sit by. And even today when you see the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, down in Williamsburg in, in Manhattan when Barbara and I used to live there and they, all the rabbis had these great fur hats and they're all different. So it signified who that rabbi was and then everybody knew who their rabbi was by the hat he wears. So that still goes on. And then they would start to teach and their following would gather around and they would just interpret. And Jesus does that. Now I want you to remember how bold this has to be, right? I mean, uh, he just had, in chapter 6, verse 66, all the many disciples that turned away from him. As soon as it got too hard to hear him, they turned away and they walked away, remember? So he's already, I mean, he's still a man, right? He still have, has, receives things viscerally. In other words, they can impact him. They can affect him. We know that God himself has grief. He has emotions. How did that feel for many of his disciples to turn and walk away and to have to turn to the 12 remaining and say, will you also go? So he's, I mean, a, a man would be weak in that moment. He would be questioning himself. He would be saying, I'm such a, I'm a failure. Maybe that's why, his brothers might be speculating, maybe that's why he's not going to come down with us. He's ashamed. He failed. Everybody walked away. That's not why. It was a timing situation. So he has to think past all of that humanity, if you will, that he has to accept the perfect timing of the Father 
Well, now we can see he couldn't have been too weak because he marches right into town midweek, goes right up into the temple and starts preaching. Wow, that's impressive. He's never studied, though. So they have to admit to something. They have to admit to his mastery with Scripture. He, he handles Scripture in an amazing way, and that's what gets their attention. It's like, but this, this man really knows the Word of God, the extant Scriptures at their time, our Old Testament. But he's never studied Matthew 13, verses 54 and 55 and 57 says, And coming into his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So we see the same kind of thing and the same kind of reaction in his hometown earlier, as we see in Matthew's gospel. He taught them in their synagogue, that's in Nazareth, so that they were astonished. In our text, it says, they marveled. So it's the same response. It's like, whoa. He, he, he's the carpenter's son. He's, he carries boards and for, his fa, for his stepdad, Joseph. Um, where did he learn all of this? This is profound. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Right, there's a lot to reconcile there because it's not just his amazing teaching. It's the miracles. And listen, those things were done openly. If any of this was a hoax or not real or didn't happen and isn't historical, this, the scriptures never would have made it for 2,000 years. They'd say, what's this? This is a fable. Especially with the feeding of the 5,000, remember? They're not only witnesses, real-time witnesses of what happened. They're participants. So there's no denying it. So they're saying, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary, goes on to name his brothers, where then did he get all these things? But then it says this in verse 57 of Matthew, and they took offense at him. Why? He's feeding people. He's healing people. Why did they take offense at him? And as it's made very clear, and we covered extensively as we were going through those texts, and we saw from chapter 5 when he healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida. And he goes on to teach and they resent him. And then chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and they walk away from him. Why? It's because of his words. It's his words that do it. And we talked a great deal about that. So now here we go again, except this time in the temple. Jesus leaves no room because of his mastery with the scripture. He leaves no room for them to refute him from scripture. So they attack him. You see this all the way through until they finally kill him. I've got a way to silence him. Let's get him crucified because I can't hear this anymore. This still goes on today. Verse 16 so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. So here's the provenance of his teaching. Here's where his teaching comes from. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. When you look at all the way back in Deuteronomy, verse 18 of chapter 18, the Lord speaking to Moses gives this prophetic statement. Listen to what he says all the way back then. I will raise up for them, the people of God, a prophet like you, meaning Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So that's what Jesus means when he says, the words are not mine. The words have come from him who sent me. The words come from the Father. So we're talking about the Godhead here. He just became the human voice. The human voice for the Godhead attributing it to whom it belongs, to the Father, to show, as we're going to see, that he's not there to teach for his own glory's sake. The words that we preach aren't ours. They're God's. The greatest hope of any preacher today can be leaving the sanctuary saying, what a great what? Excuse me? 
what a great, like nobody knew. <laughs> oh, you know, you're just in rapt attention, right? What a great God we have, not what an awesome preacher. Because he's not, he's just a man. But what a great God as he reveals himself, and that's who they're face-to-face with. So he makes that clear, but it also shows, as we're going to get to, and I'm a little spoiler alert, uh, the proper humility. That's one of the points we're going to get to. Because it's not for his own glory's sake, is it, that he does these things. So John chapter 8, 26 and 27, and the second part of 28, He who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. See? They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Saying the Father to them means God. They knew that it was God. I and the Father are one. What was the reaction when he said that? They were picking up stones. They were going to stone him to death. They knew what it meant. He says, in verse 28, second half of, of John 8, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. The words aren't mine. The works aren't mine. So that you see that I'm not here to gain my own glory unilaterally apart from the Godhead. You must understand the importance, the important role humility plays in our Godhead. John 12, 49 and 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. See, if we didn't know these things about his intention, we wouldn't understand why he keeps saying this. Yeah, we get it. It comes from the Father. Why do you have to stress that? Well, we've come to learn, haven't we, that when he stresses something, it's because we need what? Yeah, we need help and we need a reminder. Yeah, exactly. And so he's faithful to do that. He's patient with us that way. I'm going to remind you again. He goes on, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's in one verse. It's over and over again. And then in his high priestly prayer, when Jesus is praying to the Father, before he's about to be crucified in chapter 17 of John, verse 8, for I have given, he's speaking to the Father in this beautiful, profound prayer, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is the human voice for God. This he's made very clear. He speaks divine words, inspired words, authoritative words, eternal words. His words are that powerful. Everything Jesus does fulfills the divine will of the Father or God and meets the divine timetable as we talked about last time, meets that perfectly. He knows what man thinks Chapter 2, verse 25, he knows what man thinks. He knows what we think. And he also, according to chapter 5, verse 42, knows what or who we love. He knows the ones that actually love him and the ones that are filled with contempt that stand before him even now at the temple. He can see that. And yet he carries on with a word of hope, with truth, the only truth, the only voice, the only words that can save their eternal soul. He continues on. Wouldn't you be tempted to blow it off? Let's, let's just get down from the courtyard. This is exhausting. It's hot anyway. Let's go get a falafel, right? I'm hungry. He's not making any bread. They can see all that. <laughs> they, he's looking at their hearts. He's listening to their thoughts. What amazing patience and grace. So, second is the proof of obedience. Now, you can prove that his teaching is true when you obey it. That's the point. Let's hear what he says. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So this statement obviously presupposes chapter 6, verse 44 and 65. Verse uh, 44, where he says, No one comes to me unless what? The Father who sent me 
draws him. And then I will raise him up on the last day. So it presupposes that. In other words, this is a, another way of saying, and if you truly desire to do what God wants, if that's you, you have a heart desire to do what you know the God who created everything wants, in doing it, in doing it, you will know that the teaching is from him. That's my own paraphrase of what he's saying there. So it's proven in obedience. When we, when we have that sincere desire, so it not only presupposes those God must be at work versus God has to give us the ability to even desire that, but it presupposes something else. It presupposes belief, right? I have to believe that he's actually God. I've been waiting for him. Remember Simeon in Luke's gospel? The Messiah's finally come as a baby, but he's finally come. We usually read that text during Christmas time. Now I can die, he says. Not, no shortage of drama in that part of the world. Now I can die. The Messiah's here. He, he was told that he will be able to see the Messiah before he dies, and he believed it. So if you really believe God is who he says he is, if you would simply put into practice the things that he's saying, it ends up validating or verifying that it's true. You can see it in your life, in the testimony of your life. As you love God or you want to know about God and you want to hear from him, no, I want to live God's way. I know we've missed that appointment because of the way I think and the, and the things I do. I want to do it his way. He invites you, then do it. Just do it and watch what happens. Just start striving after me. Just follow me. Just look to the book where I'm speaking to you in real time and just do it and watch me work. Watch things happen. It will become the verification that my teaching is true, Jesus is saying. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely remarkable. If anyone's will, but that's the presupposition, is that you have to have a true desire. Your will has to be changed to where I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm tired of being a rebel. I want to do it God's way. Then he says, okay, I'll take you at that point. Now follow me and live this way. And it'll show you that what I speak to you is true. Remarkable. Listen to these verses that support this idea. Jeremiah 29, 13, for instance, you will seek me and find me when you want. Search for me with all of your heart. See, your heart has to be one. Your, your, your will has to have that desire. Your heart has to be truly wanting to see God. And you will search for me with, when you search for me with all of your heart. So if your heart is won over, you will find him. As Tyler read this morning from Psalm 119, this is verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. See, that's, that's my willing and, and doing, who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. You got to be all in, as we would say. You got to be all in. I mean, it's got to be real. It's got to be sincere. And if it is, when it is, and you abide by what he's saying, you'll find him to be true. You'll find him to be everything that he says that he is. First John 2.20 You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. This again presupposes that they're believers. I believe in God. I believe in what he says. Well then, if you seek him as your savior for the sins you've committed and you're saying, yes, I recognize him as my savior. Then he's saying you have the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit in you and the words will come to life. That's how this works. In chapter 2, verse 27 of 1 John, listen to this. Here's a little bit more elaborating on that point. The anointing that you received from the Holy Spirit abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, 
I will teach, he will teach you that when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, right in the gospel, he will teach you all things. He will. Oh yeah, I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like. Barbara and I lived in, in New York, unmarried and in the nightclubs and the whole gambit. I remember what it was like when the lights came on, when we realized when he saved us and the lights came on and all of a sudden everything made sense. Everything that was nothing but confusion and heartache up to that point, a striving after wind, a grand disappointment, major failures. And he's still teaching because he said everything, right? That's the deal. So that means everything. It's amazing. John chapter 3, verse 21, but whoever does, this is the doing, does what is true, comes to the light. Just do the doing. Just trust me and believe me. See, it presupposes those things. You've got to believe me. You've got to trust in me. You've got to follow me. You've got to listen to me. And when you do, the lights start coming on. And that is exactly what happened to me. It's exactly what happened to Barbara. That's when I said, whoa, we better get married. John 15, verse 14 to 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, somebody can turn that into something legalistic. Believe me, it's not. He just called us his friend. Romans 5 says that before that, we were his enemy. Oh, I know I was. I know how I lived. I know what I did. I know what I thought. What grace. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The verification of the teaching comes when you do the doing. And doing always flows from being. Being convinced, this is Messiah. Being convinced, this is God. Being convinced, that's exactly who I need right now. Because I'm killing myself. I'm literally dying inside. Man must come to the end of himself before God can do anything with him. And that was certainly the case for me. Banging on my kneecaps with a nightstick just by the consequences of choices I made while I thumbed my nose at any God. I was God. Doing things my way. Let us know, Hosea 6.3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. See, it, it comes in the pressing on. We, first hour, we were talking about the importance of pursuing God. It, it should have movement to it. it. It should have a compelling power to it. I, I should want Him. And for 33 years now, that's been the case. It hasn't stopped. Third, the proper humility as I alluded to earlier from verse 18. Anybody who's in it for their own aggrandizement or notoriety or wants to be well thought of, any of that is for the glory of them. So he makes it clear that's not him. And this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who we would think had, would have every right to do that. But he says this, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. In other words, he's the real thing. He's the truthful one. Because he's seeking the glory where it's rightly placed on the Father who sent him. He speaks his words. He fulfills his will to the T. So the direct opposite of this principle, obviously, would be the attitude of the false teachers and the false professors of Christ. John 5.44, how can you believe, he said there, when you receive glory from one another? You can't possibly believe. 
You're seeking glory from one another, and you do not see, you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. That's that's I think the the most legitimate mark of a true Christian is humility. It's definitely the true benchmark of spiritual maturity. Because when we start out, God's got to wrestle with the pride in us, doesn't he? He's got to wrestle with that. And some of us are like Jacob. We're like, okay, I, I'm in this. Let's wrestle all night. And he, he, he starts to prevail. And so God has to touch his hip, throw his hip out of place. So I'm at, I wonder if he's still limping up in heaven right now. Some of us can really be contentious with him, right? You want to wrestle? I'll wrestle. Let's go. All that Jesus did, all that he did was to please the Father. Matthew 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. There's nothing uglier or more spiritually immature, if it's a Christian, a true Christian, than arrogance. It's most unseemly. Why? Because it's the most opposite of Jesus Christ. One who seeks his own glory. He seeks the glory of him who sent him. Therefore, he is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So why does he keep reiterating this whole true part? Because he's making it inescapable for them. You're going to have to kill him because you're not going to find any cracks. You can find cracks in us, but you can't find cracks in him. Everything he taught was profoundly true. Listen to the humility of the Apostle Paul so we can at least get this in the human category so we can find some hope. But listen to Paul. This is Paul, right? The Apostle Paul who studied under Gamaliel. This guy was theologically brilliant as a rabbi. I mean, he, he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's just the beginning. He wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This isn't from me. He's speaking just like Jesus did. This isn't from me. It's from the one who called me on the Damascus road, who blinded me with his brightness and then restored my sight so that I could be something useful to him. But there was some formidable pride to crush first. And it's been crushed. Listen to what he writes. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles. Not only the least of all of the Christians, I'm the least of the apostles, all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Who am I to exalt myself? I persecuted Christians. If that's been part of your past, <laughs> you know how this feels. I do. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Amen and amen. 2 Corinthians 10.18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends and the Father is delighted with his son when he shows up at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amazing humility. You can't overstate the importance of that virtue. And that's something we should need to strive for every day, isn't it? Because pride is viral. It's not cured in this lifetime retreats into the spine only to come out at some ugly postule at different times or we get irritated or angry, upset or somebody offends us or things aren't going our way. We want this or we want that. It's like 
Fourth, the protection of purity. This is where he becomes impervious. There's no way to get at him here. Why? Because as I mentioned earlier, they could find nothing wrong with him. Nothing untrue about what he taught. He never committed any infraction. Never his entire life. Not one day, not once. And, and we're grateful that he didn't, right? The one infraction he would ever commit disqualifies him in that moment to serve as our sacrifice. Listen to what he says here in verse 19 and 20. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. That's a bold statement unless, of course, you're perfect. And then the, the question, why do you seek to kill me right after that? Why does that follow? Well, obviously it implies I did. I kept the law perfectly. So what, why are you killing me? Help me understand that. Nothing they could say. There's no one who can keep the law perfectly. Not even one. The scripture's clear. That is except for Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 9 to 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, so that's pretty much everybody in the world, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. Galatians 3.10, let's get some more theology under, undergirding this, biblical support. For all who rely on the works of the law, in other words, your good works, your, well, there's times that you're better, I'm hoping God grades on a curve, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, I'm not as bad as I used to be, I'm getting better, are what to him? Filthy rags, Isaiah says, because you're trying to earn your way when it cost him his life, the life of his son, to pay the payment for your sins. He doesn't want you working your way to heaven with your morality. Stop it. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you haven't done them all, and no human being has or ever will, then you need Him. You need Him because you need His perfect righteousness. And that should be plenty to keep us humble, right? <laughs> One would think. Galatians 3.22 by, by the way, just for your own information, the, the two primary soteriological books or books that talk about salvation are Romans, that's the major, and Galatians. It's a sister book. So we get a lot from these two books. Verse 22 of chapter 3 of Galatians, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So we're all caught up so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 10, 3 to 4, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. Big mistake. They did not submit to God's righteousness. It's a righteousness that he gives us as a gift. He offers it free. You don't do anything for it. You simply ask for it, admitting the truth of your need of it. But that's humbling. And so that meets against the greatest, more, most formidable human force on the planet. And it's what? Pride, yeah. It's our pride. No, 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 no. I'm going to live my way. I'll pick some kind of religious thing so I can feel good about myself, but no, 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 no. I'm a complete wretch in need of his righteousness? Yes. And I have to pay what? Nothing. Nothing. And yet people turn it down. It's a gift imputed to your account. And in my account, it's quite a ledger. There's quite a few things in the negative column. All forgiven. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Just believe. That's all he's saying to them. Just believe. John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses through Moses. Grace and truth. So the law is given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Acts 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Don't even attempt it. I had to get to the place where I can't do this. And I'm losing my life. Before he could finally say, a man has to come to the end of himself before God can do anything with him. Our pride is that strong. Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith because we would see when the law came, we're in trouble. That's the problem. Hebrews 10, 8 to 10, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, it's not through works, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Speaking of Christ, he abolishes the first, the sacrifices and offerings, in order that, to establish the second which is he's come to do the will of the Father, which is to make himself a propitiation or a payment for your sins, right? Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. They have no proof of any violation of the Mosaic law or in Jesus' case. None. So he asked them, then why are you trying to kill me? Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, why are you trying to kill me? Um, actually, because they were. They were trying to kill, and they will. As you all know, the rest of the story, Mark, 12, Mark 15, 12 to 15, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Wait, why? What evil has he done? Even the Roman governor is pointing out the sinlessness of Christ. He hasn't done anything wrong. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered them him to be crucified. Finally, fifth, the power of reason. Listen to the power of reason here. You talk about five reasons to believe. Listen to this. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. He's talking, of course, about the healing in chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda that was lame for 38 years, got up and walked, but when did he do it? What day of the week? He healed him on the Sabbath. That was his big error, right? I did one deed and you marvel at it. But listen to this. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. That's minor surgery that you did on a man's body. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Wow, what logic. Why would that rankle you? Why would that upset you? He used reason here. He used reason. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't just look at the calendar and say, ah, you're doing this on the Sabbath. The man's lame. I'm here. It happens to be the Sabbath. I'm healing a man. What man whose ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, would he not pull him out? Deuteronomy 1 
16 to 17, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment of the judgment is God's. Chapter 16, verse 18 of Deuteronomy, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. He's telling them that. He's saying, use your heads. Don't, don't park on the letter of the law. Aha! You violated this. Capture the spirit of the law. That's why he had to come and give the Sermon on the Mount, right? You were taught this, but I tell you this, right? You were taught that, but I tell you this, which has to do with the spirit of the living God and the love of God. Psalm 82, verse 2, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Or Isaiah, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ear hears, but with righteous judgment he judges the poor. And decide with equity the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He said in John eight fifteen to 16, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. I did not come to judge the world, he said in John twelve forty seven but to save the world. Judgment's already in. Our consciences are really convincing of that, convincing us of that. This is a judgment. The judgment is, I know how wrong I am. I thank God he didn't come to judge because I've already been judged. He came to save he came to seek and to save that who is lost. He came to give himself a living sacrifice that we might have life everlasting. Five reasons to believe him. Just in this handful of verses we happen to be on. The province, the provenance of his teaching, the proof of his obedience, the proper humility he displayed, the protection of the purity in his life, the power of reason that he demonstrates. Let's use this to help others see the truthfulness of who he claims to be, that they too might know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day in your house, this opportunity to worship you, hear your word, to sing your praises and say thank you, Lord. Thank you for the great sacrifice that you've made that we might have life and that more abundantly. That's your promise that you've done. So I pray, Lord, anyone who needs to be reconciled with you would simply come because they believe. They believe in that your teaching is true and that they recognize their need of you. Lord, do that now, I pray. As we pray together quietly, may we speak of these things to you. In Christ's name, amen.